Okay, Acts chapter 28, verse 17. Uh, this is God's word. I'm going to read from verse 17 through 22. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you you what your views are for with regard to the sect we know that is that everywhere is spoken against this is the word of the lord let's pray father as we finish uh this book we ask that you would lift our eyes uh to see the hope of israel to see our hope too uh we have been engrafted into israel Would we see Jesus? Lord, you know what your church needs right now. You know that uh, one man's words are not sufficient to uh, heal wounds, to sustain weary hearts, but your word is utterly sufficient to do that. And so, God, I ask that you would minister to us as we sit under your word. Uh, God, help me just to speak the truths of who you are and help us, help us as a congregation to hear and obey your word. Uh, your servants are listening, Lord, and we want you to speak to us. Do it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So the title of this sermon is actually going to be the first point of our sermon, and that is this, that God always delivers on his promises. And to be able to see where we're getting that idea, to hang that on scripture and not just our own good feelings and thoughts and hopes, we need to recognize where Paul is and what's going on. Paul has finally arrived in Rome. He has finally arrived in Rome. He's meeting with the Jewish brothers there. He has done it. There's has been chapters and chapters in waiting and longing and wondering, is he going to get there? And we, we, have, we have the words of Jesus that he's going to get there, but it's like really a shipwreck, a storm, a venomous viper comes out and bites his hand as he's trying to collect wood on the island of Malta. Yet through all these trials and tribulations, Jesus had told Paul he was going to get to Rome, and so he does get to Rome. Uh, But at the end of the book of Acts, in this sermon, it seems fitting to remind us what's been happening in the book of Acts. How, How did we get to this point? So let me remind you, Acts begins with the announcement, kind of what scholars have called the programmatic verse, that is the verse that lays out the program for how Acts is going to unfold. In Acts 1.8, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the story has focused in on Paul since Acts chapter 9, 
where Jesus showed up and knocked Saul, who was a ravager and murderer of Christians, off of his donkey and onto the ground and radically saved him. As Garrett was just talking, uh, Saul may be closer to like a member of ISIS at this point. Religious radical killing Christians, breathing murderous threats. That's who God saved. Uh, But before God saved uh, Paul, he began to fulfill his promise that uh, the disciples would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 2, we see the spirit of God poured out in Jerusalem uh, at the time of Pentecost. Then in in chapters 8 through 12, we see the spirit of God fall upon the people of Judea and Samaria. And it's been since those chapters forward been making its advance to the ends of the earth. And Paul has now arrived at Rome. Now, Rome is not the ends of the earth, uh, but that's because, spoiler alert, the book of Acts, the story of Acts, isn't truly over. It's not truly over. It's the story of all the Lord Jesus began to do in his early church. And so us praying together that God would save people from the religion of Islam, that he would save Muslims, is actually the story of Acts still going forward. That Jesus is building his church, he is bringing his kingdom to the ends of the earth, and we're involved in that. But though the story that Acts has begun isn't truly over, Paul's arrival in Rome is remarkable, and it's a bastion of courage for us as followers of Jesus. And why is that? Because Paul stepping foot on the real estate of Rome is yet another testimony that God never fails. All of his words are true. In Acts 9, Paul was chosen by Jesus, and Jesus told him, you're my chosen instrument, and you're going to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and before kings and to the children of Israel, and you're going to have to suffer much. And then we see later in Acts chapter 19, something is birthed by the Spirit of God in Paul's heart where he's, he's in Jerusalem and he says, uh, well, he's not yet in Jerusalem. He has, he's, has plans to go there, but it says this. Uh, Paul says, I'm going to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And he says, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. He has this desire from Acts chapter 19 that, I need to go there. I've got to go to Rome and tell, the, tell my brothers and sisters of Israel about what Jesus has done. And it's beginning from that point on that we have this long, drawn-out interplay between the Jewish opposition, Jewish opposition and Roman justice system. And we wouldn't really expect this going into the book of Acts, that it's going to be the Jews are rejecting God in the gospel, that they're rejecting the gospel of God, and the Gentiles are upholding justice and allowing Paul to be able to go forth. But that's what we see. Time and again, it's the Jews who are persecuting, conspiring to kill God's messenger, and it's the Romans who uphold justice. They don't persecute Paul, and they seem to have more of an open ear to the gospel. And we wonder throughout these chapters leading up to chapter 28, is Paul really going to get there? Is Paul really going to make it to Rome. In, 20 verse, in chapter 23 of Acts, verse 11, we do have the assurance by Jesus 
that he will make it. We have a promise made by Jesus. Jesus said this. Luke writes, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Jesus has promised him, but we have to go through so much to finally get to Rome. Shipwreck, temptuous storms, venomous snake bites, death threats. But it's after this long road, Paul's finally in Rome. And he's going to preach first to the Jews here, as was his custom and the plan of God, that the gospel would go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And this fact that Paul made it to Rome is good news for us as Christians. And it's good news for this reason. We, we hear Jesus' words. We, we uh, you know, okay, Jesus told him he's going to get to Rome. He's going to get there, yada, yada, yada. When you actually... Let it bear weight on your soul that Paul had to suffer so much that he had to to face the setbacks and delays and pain that he did. Suddenly it starts to make a little bit, it makes the story of Acts a little relatable. Because do you ever wonder if you're really going to make it in life? Like, cut through all the other stuff. You know the promises of God but you feel the existential weight of doubt that God will deliver on his promises. We wonder things like, am I really going to see this sin die in my life? He says, he says in his word that I'm no longer a slave to sin. It sure feels like I am. Is God really able to supply my every need? Because I, I don't feel like it's being supplied right now. Like, I've made it through the last year, but I don't know about this next month. I I don't feel like I can make it. Will I see that God is good in the final count? Or is is it like God's good in the sense he always gives me the medicine I need, but it always tastes terrible, and I guess it's good for me, and that's it? Or maybe you feel let down by everyone around you. And you wonder, how, how is God going to accomplish his purposes when everyone's unfaithful around me? Well, here's how we can appropriate the story of Paul making it to Rome to our lives. Because we're meant to take the story of Paul and actually let it bear weight, bear down on our own souls. And the first thing we need to do is this. We need to preach to our hearts that God was faithful to his promise. Like, we need to recognize that. Jesus said, I'm going to get you to Rome, and Jesus accomplished it. He delivered on his promise. We have to say, I don't know, maybe I don't know if anything else is true, but I know this right now, Jesus delivers on his promises. But within that, we need to also take into account the rest of the story and recognize that it wasn't without much suffering and much delay in our own eyes, that Paul was brought to Rome. It sure, it sure, seemed, uh, it sure seemed like not according to the right timeline, not according to plan, that Paul gets on a boat, okay, he's finally going to get there. No, you're going to hit a storm in the middle of the ocean. You're going to get shipwrecked on the island of Malta. You're going to try to do something nice for other people, gather the wood. Uh, and during that time, you're going to have a venomous, venomous viper 
fastened onto your head. Everyone's going to think you did something bad and that's why you're dying. And it's going to take you a few days to heal up and just survive that on your journey to Rome. Paul suffered much. It seemed delayed. So we can look at our own lives and say, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I can answer all the reasons why there's suffering in my life right now. I can't understand all of why this hasn't happened yet, but I look at the story of Paul, and I'm sure he probably felt that way too, so I'm not alone. I'm not a stranger in feeling some of these things. Thirdly, we need to recognize that it wasn't without the prayer and action of Paul that he made it to Rome. It wasn't without God, uh, the prayers of Paul and the action of Paul. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the sovereignty of God in uh, working amidst all sufferings and all things passing through his careful hands. Now, talking about God's sovereignty actually should not lead us to the place of resigning to do anything in life and just becoming Stoics. Well, whatever's going to happen will happen. It's fatalistic, man. I don't know. God wants him to die in my life. He should make it happen. No, it doesn't lead us to a fatalistic point. Instead, it actually, it propels us to pray, to resolve to pray. It allows us to not lose heart, okay? So here's a silly example, but stay with me, about how the sovereignty of God actually bolsters us to pursue the things of God, okay? Uh, imagine, imagine a young man, imagine a young single man uh, finds in his heart feelings for a woman, a girl that he thinks is beautiful and so out of his league and he'll never be able to get with. But he really, he, he longs to be able to date her and marry, maybe marry her. Now, he thinks about thoughts of like, I think I should go talk to her. And immediately he says, no, you idiot. Why would I ever go talk to her? She probably doesn't like you. She could never like a guy like me. He has fear pulsing through his veins and all in his heart. But then one day, he finds out from a friend, you know what? I don't know why, but she likes you. And he's like, what? He said, she even said, if you'd ask her out, she'd say yes. Okay, now what does that do in the heart of this guy who has been longing and hoping that he can maybe go on a date with her, he can maybe date her and marry her one day? What does that do? Does that make him sit back on the couch and say, well, that's cool. I guess I'll just keep playing video games. No, he says, oh my gosh, she's, she likes me. She would say yes if I asked her out. I'm going to go ask her out. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to talk to her. She's not going to reject me when I come to her. That's actually what the sovereignty of God is like. That God is in control of all things. And yet we also know that he has promised, I'm never going to cast out anyone who comes to me. And I am good, and I'm going to work all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purposes. That doesn't make me want to hide from God. That makes me want to pursue after him, seek after him, ask him all things, because I know I can trust him, and I know he's going to deliver what is good for me. The sovereignty of God should never lead us to not pursue prayer and act, but it should, it should encourage us that God will accomplish the things that he has purposed to do. And he's told us, pray to me and ask me. So I'm going to pray to him and ask me. He says, go and preach the gospel. So I'm going to go and preach the gospel to people. Uh, fourthly, in the midst of preaching to our hearts that God was faithful, 
recognizing it's not without much suffering and delay and that it's not apart from prayer and action, we need to recognize that within the full counsel of God's word, there's also a lot of space to be able to lament to God when things are hard. There are whole psalms written where the psalmist just cries out, how long, Lord? Why, God? And he talks to himself, too. Why, am, why are you downcast? Why are you so depressed right now? Why are you so bummed out? There's space to cry out to God, to say, God, it doesn't feel like things are going the way they should. We can do that with our God. And we, we are not meant normatively to end just in despair and just saying, this doesn't feel right, to be, but to be able to take a hold of an aspect of God's character and attribute and say, but I trust in your unfailing love. But I trust as you deliver Paul, you're going to deliver me too. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I trust that you will. But brother and sister, there's, there's space to lament and cry out to God in the midst of suffering and pain. And so in the end, we can say, I don't know exactly how God's going to deliver me. Like there's, there's things going on in my own life right now that I look around, and I, I say, I don't, some things don't seem right. I don't know how God's going to work all of this stuff out, but I know he will deliver on his promise that he'll never leave me or forsake me. And I, I do know that his grace is sufficient for me today. And if his grace is sufficient for me today, I don't need to expect that it feels like it's going to be sufficient for the next 30 years, but that as I wait upon the Lord, his grace is going to be sufficient for me tomorrow also. That the Bible says we're like jars of clay, we're cracked and we leak out. We, we need to daily be filled with new hope. But the good news is that God gives new mercies every morning. That as we wait upon him, he does He does give us new grace. And he says, I'm going to be sufficient for you again today. I'm going to be sufficient for you tomorrow as you wait upon me. He gives new mercies. And as surely as Paul was brought through the assassination plots, the the tempestuous storm, the venomous snake bite, the persecutions, as surely as he was brought through all his sufferings, God will also accomplish his purpose in my life. So I take heart. I pray like Paul. I trust in the God who delivered him. And this is where I take Philippians 1.6 and I just cling to it. We talk a lot about finding the promises of God and laying hold of them. This is one of my favorite promises from God that Paul spoke. Paul said this in Holy Scripture, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul arrives in Rome, and now he's preaching to the Jews there. And so he opens his mouth, and as he opens his mouth, we see that God's message he's bringing is all about God. God's message is all about God. Acts 28, verse 23, When they had appointed a day for him, They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Remember, he's not able to go to them because he's under house arrest. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Morning till evening, okay? 
I'm taking this as privilege no matter how long this sermon goes. Whatever. Uh, Maybe it's already going too long. Uh, Testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So from morning to evening, he's opening it up and testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to sway them. Don't you see how this entire book is about Jesus? So Paul, he meets with the Jewish leaders. They hadn't heard anything bad about him. Did you notice that in our opening reading? Paul says, hey, look, I didn't do anything against your nation and I haven't committed any crimes. And he's just, he's normally, because I work with the youth a lot. So if a kid runs up to me and says, look, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Whatever they say is a lie. I, I immediately, you're guilty. I don't know what you're guilty of, but you're guilty, right? <laughs> Paul starts doing that. He's actually telling the truth in this moment. And uh, ironically, the Jewish leaders say, hey, we haven't heard anything. Nobody's delivered a letter. Uh, We haven't had anybody come and tell us anything. This is likely because Paul uh, traveled to Rome at the worst possible time he could through a stormy season on the sea, and no one else is going to go during that time. They're like, "Ah, we should really warn the Roman Jews about Paul, but, oh, man, that storm, we're not going, whatever. So Paul gets there by the sovereignty of God. They haven't heard about uh, him, and so he sets up a time to proclaim the gospel to them. And this is actually what he's doing by expounding the scriptures. It's mirroring what Jesus did at the end of Luke. That's the other, Luke is the other book other than Acts that Luke wrote. Jesus uh, was walking down the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected. And the gospel of Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what he's doing right here is he's, opening up all the Old Testament. That's shorthand way of saying Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And he's saying every single one of these stories, every single one of these characters is pointing towards, is foreshadowing, is a type of or run through with the thread of the Messiah who will come, the one that, Jesus, the one that God will send to rescue his own people. So what we see from this is that the whole Bible is a story of God bringing his kingdom and reclaiming and renewing and establishing a people for himself. That's the story of the entire Bible. The Old Testament, we could say, are the promises made by God. In the New Testament, it's the promises that are kept. Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, we could say, but he's revealed in the New. He's anticipated throughout all the Old and we see the consummation in the New Testament. So we have to look at the Bible and according to Jesus himself and Paul, recognize that it's all about Christ. It's about Jesus. Every hero in the Old Testament and in the entire Bible is a shadow of Christ. Every single one of them. Every story is a foreshadowing or an anticipation of the one who would come, the story that God saves. God saves sinners. We don't save ourselves. So an example of this uh, would be, let's take uh, one example that came up in our yearly Bible, our one-year Bible reading from a couple weeks ago. Uh, We just finished the book of 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel is largely the story of David. Uh, And we're pretty familiar with the story of David. He killed Goliath. He uh, 
wrote Psalm 23. He did some different things. He had the really egregious sin against Bathsheba and then killing her husband. Uh, But then he repented, but not after quite a bit of time, but he repented and came back to the Lord. But something towards the end of the life of David that we don't hear as much about is his relationship with one of his sons named Absalom. His relationship with his son Absalom. And so the story of David goes this way. Towards the end of David's life, uh, his son Absalom starts getting pretty jealous of David's rule and decides, I would make a better king than my dad. And so he starts acting on that feeling. He starts telling people, oh, my dad doesn't have time to hear your cases. You should come to me. I have time for you. I'm a man of the people. I want to serve you. And so he starts, he starts uh, sowing these seeds of doubt in his father. And what he's trying to do is steal the throne from his father. And eventually he goes out with an all-out uh, plot to be able to steal the throne from his father. He gets a bunch of men together and he tries to overthrow King David. And so his dad is sent out and has to hide. Now, can you imagine this? Your son, who you brought into the world, who you raised up, who you provided for, decides in your older age that you should die and he wants to take your place. How does that break your heart? How does that make you feel about the son who you gave so much love and care for? So David's in this spot, and throughout all of it, though, his heart longs uh, to be made right with Absalom, but in a way that pretty much blinds him to his son's sin. He's blind to his son's sin, and so eventually there comes a battle where uh, the men of David go and fight Absalom's men, and David stays back, and they fight, and one of David's commanders, Joab, he sees Absalom out on the field, and he says, you know what, I'm going to end this now, and he goes, and he kills Absalom, and David's men have the victory, and so David's back in the castle, he's awaiting the news, and so he sees a runner coming with the good news, and the runner is coming, and he asks him, hey, what happened? What happened? And the runner gives him the good news, we defeated Absalom's men, we were victorious, and all David says is, well, what happened to Absalom? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm not sure. And so then another runner comes and gives him the good news, but he says, do you, know, do you know what happened to my son Absalom? And so he says, yeah, your son Absalom, he was killed on the battlefield. And it's at that point that David says, oh, Absalom, oh, that I would have died instead of Absalom. Now, David says this pretty much in sin because Joab is going to take him aside and say, are you kidding me? We just risked our entire lives for you and you just wish your son who rebelled against you, who tried to steal your kingdom, who would have you dead if he could. You you wish that you had died instead of him? Joab rebukes him. And I remember reading this for the first time and just like, man, how dysfunctional is David? How How blind is he that he can't see how gross his son sin is? But then I remember the moment that the thought occurred to me, and it felt like the Holy Spirit was showing me. David sinfully said, oh, I wish I would have died instead of my own son at the expense of his own men. But there actually was a king who said, I'll die 
instead of you. And he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. That we rebelled against a king. We said, I, don't, I reject your kingdom. I want to be king. But in the sinful plea of David, oh, that I would have died for him, God, in perfect grace and righteousness, said, I actually will die instead of them. And that's just one example of the st- all the stories of the Old Testament that point forward to the truth that God would one day send a greater king who would rescue his people, that he would send a greater prophet who's actually able to deliver them, that he would send a great high priest who was without sin and also able to draw near to his people. So Paul proclaims to them Jesus from all of the law of Moses and from the prophets, but he also testifies to them about the kingdom of God. So we need to obviously ask, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is not, it's not just where the miraculous is happening. That is an aspect of the kingdom of God, but more centrally, more foundationally, the kingdom of God is where the rule and reign of God is, where he is actively exercising his rule and his reign. It's where Christ is truly loved and adored and worshiped as king. And so Paul shows up to him and says, Jesus is king. He is He has made atonement for sins, and the way to receive the kingdom, to come into this kingdom, is to repent of your sin and trust in the king who gave himself for you. And so we can say the whole Bible is telling the story up until Christ of how we can't save ourselves. And it seems like a long time, right? It's like, wouldn't one story do? But we really need this beat into our heads. Because we are so prone to thinking, I can save myself. If you just give me another shot, I just need a little more time. If I just had this one thing, if I just had a better leader, if I on and on and on, but the truth of the Bible is all of it is telling you, you can't save yourself. You're not able to. God gave us the law. He said, keep this, and none of us can perfectly keep it. We have hearts that don't naturally love God. We need a savior to come from outside of ourselves. Israel is hopeless. Yet God has sent the hope of Israel. Moses, he wasn't enough. Our best has never been good enough. But God has in Jesus sent one who can save and has saved. And so it's this gospel and this Jesus that Paul proclaims. And the text goes on, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and, their ears th- and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Paul, re- 
Paul proclaims the good news of Jesus, and some reject it. And Paul, in one statement, explains what has happened. He says, they've closed their eyes. They've hardened their hearts. And so God has finally, after much patience, said, okay, have it your way. I won't change your heart. These verses from Isaiah are quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The Holy Spirit inspired these words, and they come up often. The hard-hearted have had God's messenger come and preach grace to them. And this message of grace is not simply everything's okay, everything's good. Whatever's going on in your life, don't worry about it. God loves you. It's all good. No, God does love you, but the message of grace, the message of the grace of God is urgent. We must respond. And what they do is they despise and they reject the grace of God itself. And if you're anything like me, you at this point have the knee-jerk reaction to think that's unfair. That's not fair. But we need to, we need to question that reaction. Is it unfair? I think we often assume that we are innocent and God kind of owes us some favors. Maybe we've, we've made some mistakes over time, but we're not, I'm not a bad person. I'm pretty innocent before God. But the message of the Bible is that God is loving and kind and just. But we are guilty and we have sinned against it. And in his love, he has sent his son to die for all who would turn from their sins and believe in him, and he would forgive them. And yet, there are some who hear the gospel of grace and are dead to it, have no love for it. They reject it. And so what's going on in this thing, I think, is summed up well in John 3.19 that says this. This is judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They see the goodness of God and they refuse to love him. And it's even into this that God preaches grace. Ray Ortland says the following. The remedy for our deadness to God's grace is more grace. If your heart does not leap at God's grace in Christ, what you need is more grace. Nothing else can save you from your own deadness. Therefore, fear your own hardness of heart more than anything else. If God's grace isn't making you alive, there is no other hope. So examine your own heart. Let me ask you, at the end of our study of Acts, have you responded to this gospel? Does your heart leap at God's grace in Christ? 
is Jesus precious to you? Like, would you sell everything just to be near him? Because you see the treasure he is. Isaiah would close his book in chapter 66 by saying, this is the one to whom the Lord's going to look. He who trembles at my word, who fears me and trembles at my word. We need to fear the hardness of our own hearts more than anything else. Every time we hear the word of God, we're not left unchanged. We're either hardened or softened by it. Because God's word is too powerful to leave us unchanged. So let me plead with you, as Paul pled with his own people, repent of your sins. Whether they're gross or dignified, you need God and judgment is coming and we're not promised tomorrow. And if we harden our hearts, if we ignore the work of the Holy Spirit, there may come a day where God finally says, okay, love what you want. The word of God never fails. It always accomplishes all that he sets it out to do. You're not being called to earn something in this. You're being called to lay down all of your self-righteousness. You're not not being called to keep up the lie and good appearances. You're, You're being called to finally be honest. Ray Orland also says something I love. He says, you know, we we can be impressive or we can be known, but we can't be both. You're not being called to have an orphaned relationship with God, but to be adopted into his family. So come to him. He won't reject any who come to him. If you're thinking right now, well, he would never take me. If you come to him, he will not reject you. Saying, well, I don't have enough Stop trusting what you have and trust only in what Christ has done. Still in all of this, he's working even the rejection of some for his glory. So let's look at the last section with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The Puritans are famous for saying, the same sun that hardens the clay, it melts the ice. And so God has pronounced judgment on Israel until, as we know, Romans 9 through 11 teaches us, In the last days, he will gather his chosen remnant from Israel. But now the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And he says, they will listen and praise Christ. Because if you're a Christian, you're like me and you were dead to the things of God. But God made you live. Like we have to ask the question, why did I listen? Why did I hear it? And I, I began to believe. It's not, it's not because I was better than them. It's not because I made better choices. I decided at the right time of my life to get my act together because I came from a better family. 
It's because of the grace of God. And Acts ends with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so as Acts ends, Paul begins to fade to the background. The last name we're left with is Jesus Christ. Well, we, we obviously are curious people, and we wonder, well, what happened to Paul? Where'd he go? Like, was he just, we wonder what happened to him. Now, there's a couple of options of what happened to Paul. Uh, so I'll, I'll explain a couple of the options. I'll, I can even tell you which way I kind of lean, but we're not completely positive. Uh, but if the historical accounts outside of the Bible are reliable, some of history would tell us that Paul was likely released from this imprisonment and went on a journey to Spain, which he said he longed to do in his own heart in, the, in Romans chapter 15. And then he was arrested again in Rome for a second time. A lot of people theorize this is the time being, this is during the time that the Emperor Nero had his change of heart on Christians uh, and started persecuting them uh, throughout all the empire and that he was, uh, that he'd be beheaded in Rome. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. Uh, some, some good evidence for this may be that the prison Paul talks about being in in 2 Timothy, it seems to be pretty different than just a house arrest. Uh, he's cold. Uh, it seems like he's maybe wet. He's just longing for another coat and some more books, which is just so Paul, right? You know, Paul, bring me a coat. I'm so cold. I need some more books too. Uh, so he's longing for that. Uh, that's one option. And I think there's some pretty good arguments for that. The other option is that perhaps he just stayed imprisoned uh, for a long, long time and just eventually died in Rome and wrote his letters from there. We're not sure. Um, we're not completely sure. Those are a couple options. But we need to ask this question. Why would Luke end Acts? That's one of those two options. Imprisonment or second imprisonment and death. Why would he end Acts on such a high note? I don't believe it's because he didn't know what happened to Paul. Okay, Luke, Luke is a historian. He has used eyewitness account over and over and over again. He could have uh, appended the book of Acts and told us what happens if he wanted to. It's not just because he didn't know or he didn't have the data. And it's also not because, I th- it's not because he just wanted to be more peppy. It's not as if uh, Luke thought, oh gosh, the book of Acts is going into the Bible. Paul dies. That's kind of a bummer. I need to spruce this up a little bit. I don't think that's why. Why, why would Luke end Acts on such a high note? think for the following reasons. First, to remind us Acts was never about Paul. It was about Jesus. And that's the life of Paul. The guy that would say to live is Christ, to die is gain. The guy that would say, man, the man, the woman goes down into the grave but the gospel goes forth and praise Christ for that. I'll be content in that. When he comes back, I'll be resurrected, but he's the only one that deserves the glory. And that, that kind of thinking, the man goes down, the message goes on. The woman goes down, the message goes on. That's so liberating. Because it says, you're not the hero, I'm not the hero. 
you realize in a hundred years from now, probably no one on earth, if the Lord should wait that long to come back, will know your name in this room. Think about that. Does that make you a little nervous? Sometimes it makes me a little (laughs) nervous. But we who are in Christ will be in rapturous love, completely content in him. It doesn't matter if no one knows my name. I'll be with the one my soul loves. It was never about Paul. It was never truly about us. It was about Jesus. I think it ends this way. Secondly, to testify there are seasons of fruitfulness. Sometimes we just need that kind word from a friend to remind us it's not always going to be this way. I think one of the most powerful lies of Satan is to, to take our hard moments of life, our moments of suffering, and, and make us believe this is the way it's always going to be. It'll never get better. I think what he wants to do is basically invert Romans eight twenty eight that says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes and tell us God is not at work in anything and it's all bad. No, there there are seasons of fruitfulness. Paul suffered a lot, and he also, by God's grace, he got to endure, or he got to experience uh, two years of preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. He'll lead us into these seasons. We need to just be faithful to him. And if you're suffering right now, I want to remind you, it's not always going to be this way. There is hope. Lastly, to assure us that every story for the believer, no matter how horrid it is in the moment, it ends in sweet victory. Jesus is really coming again. And on that day, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to make all things right. He's going to heal every affliction every wound, every relational broken thing in this universe, he's going to set right. And on that day, every affliction and suffering and longing will be satisfied. And what we know in part, we'll then know in full that Christ is beautiful and he's more beautiful than anything in this universe. That God is good and he's He's better than anything. We'll know that in full and we'll be with him forever. And nothing, nothing will seem wasted. He'll have redeemed all things, every single detail of your life. And so Acts ends. The last name we hear is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel goes forth and it's reached Carpinteria. And now what the Lord Jesus wants to do is have us be faithful, that it would go to the very ends of the earth before the Lord Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book of the Bible. I thank you for Paul and 
the incredible example he is that, um, of joy and suffering, of contentment in all things. We ask for the same kind of Christ-likeness and godliness that we saw in him. And Lord, for your church here in Carpinteria, we want to be faithful to you. We want to be faithful to the end. But we need you for that, God. You're the one who's going to hold us fast. Lord, I pray for those in here who have hardened their hearts to your word. I ask today, by grace, you would break through their calloused hearts and they would trust in your grace. I ask for those of us who have trusted, but we need to trust afresh. We need to, we need to examine our own heart and we need just to be encouraged by you in fresh faith. Would you give it? Lord, you know the things we need. We lay our hearts before you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.